I didn't know what I was working towards. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I literally just took the opportunities that were presented in front of me. And little by little, those opportunities took me in a particular direction. So, you know, some people are like, yo, this is my life. This is who I'm going to be. And when I am 45 years of age, this is, I said, I just want to be alive. So as long as I'm alive and I've got some money in the bank, I'll be happy. I'm David Eliku, and this is The Knowledge, a podcast for anyone obsessed with learning more and living better. In every episode, I speak with successful people from a variety of backgrounds to unpack everything they've learned about navigating the world around us. This week, I'm speaking with Richie Brave, who is a broadcaster and presenter at BBC Radio 1 Extra. Man, this was such a great episode. I think one of the things that I love about this podcast, and I'm sure many of you do as well, is the fact that there are some weeks where I get to speak with incredible founders and CEOs that have built six, seven, eight figure businesses. And that is incredible on its own. And there's so many lessons and things to unpack there that are incredibly inspirational. But simultaneously, I also get to speak with people who are experts in their field in their own right, but come from a variety of walks of life and are doing incredible things in their own fields. And Richie is one of those people. So he's a broadcaster and presenter but we really dug into his background growing up in London, his early experiences, and really I think the bulk of it was this idea of being able to craft your own career and building a life that works for you. And then the other part, which is something I truly admire Richie for, is the tremendous amount of grassroots work that he does in his local community. So again, this was a fantastic episode. You can find Richie on Twitter at Richie Brave. If you love this episode, please engage with it, subscribe, share it with a friend, and most importantly, please don't forget to leave a review because it helps us tremendously to grow the show and reach other people just like you. So you do two jobs, what are they? So I'm head of diversity for a publishing company and obviously I'm a presenter broadcaster so I'm kind of straddling two careers at the moment. I want to ask more about those roles specifically but I'm super interested in your background and how you got to where you are now and that's like one of the big reasons I wanted to have you on is because even when people think of being a a radio presenter that's one of those things that so many people say particularly young people right was that something that you originally envisaged as something you wanted to do when you were older do you know what is so funny so I think like with your hopes and dreams there swings and roundabouts right so they come and they go and they change throughout life and I'd say radio is definitely something I've always wanted to do since I was young and I forgot my dream a little bit if that makes sense so when I was young like I'd used to make fake radio shows on this little tape recorder that I had, like, and I'd put little songs in them. It'd be really intricate recording songs off the radio and that. And I'd be only about six, you know, like five, six. I'd used to listen to like a lot of like Baseline FM and all of that back in the day. These are like community radios, pirate radio stations, essentially. And I'd always want to be part of them and on the show and getting involved. So for me, it's definitely a dream come true in a lot of ways, but it was, it it, it came in a really indirect way. That's one thing I find so interesting about, the music scene in the UK, 
and I'm sure maybe there's an extent to which this is exactly the same in lots of other places. But I know for us, when talking about black British people, okay, for for a start to a disclaimer, I wasn't actually born here, but I did come here, you know, as a kid. And so I, I, I experienced a lot of- How dare what, you? What, what everyone else experienced. So yeah, but yeah, I know yeah, yeah. for you and for a lot of other people, growing up, like music is a big part. And the difference for us from the black community perspective is I think- Music is something that we made for ourselves a lot of the time. So music isn't just what you're hearing on the radio, like the most popular tunes in the same way that if you're growing up and you're hearing from a different demographic and you're hearing like Elvis Presley or you're hearing the Beatles, if you're from Liverpool specifically, okay, that might be close to you. But for most people, that's just, that's somewhere distant, right? And then the music that they're making, that's popular music, is somewhere distant. Whereas I definitely feel like for us, apart from maybe American music like Motown and a lot of stuff that we had back then, a lot of the music that we listen to- I'm not that old, you know. You said Motown. No, no, no. I'm joking, I'm joking, bro. I'm joking, I'm joking. At least from what I experienced, a lot of the music that I grew up listening to was our music. I was listening to people at other schools. Where I was in school, I'm listening to like rappers and people in other schools and the music that they're making. And by the time I'm listening to radio, those are still like all of the rappers that I know. A lot of them are people that my friends went to school with. So even though there's people that you see now, like Stormzy or even, okay, Cadet, who has passed, unfortunately. But those are people that my friends went to school with. So... When I'm listening to that music, not so much now, because they're a lot bigger now, but at least back then, it was so much closer to home. Do you know what's interesting as well, and I think it's often overlooked in black communities specifically. So if you're from West Africa, or if you're from the West Indies like I am, like if you're, you know, of Caribbean descent, like essentially music was a way to connect you with your culture and connect you with home. So we'd come together, if you listen to like dancehall, reggae, sound system culture, all of those carnival itself is based and rooted in Caribbean music, right? And essentially it was a taste of home. So, you know, if you look at people, if you look at white communities in Britain, they're connecting with something that they're living in, right? You're you're white British, you're connecting with a music that's all around you. I think specifically for us, when we came over from West Africa, East Africa, South Africa, the West Indies, South America, music was a way for us to keep up to date with what was happening in our home countries and in our home areas and home. It it allowed us to create a culture for ourselves. And then offshoots of that, you look at the lover's rock. You know, I'm a a music lover in it. So you look at like your lover's rocks, then you look at your hip hops, your jungle music. You had like dancehall artists from the UK. And then you look at like dubstep and garage and grime and Afro swing and all of that kind of stuff. There is that kind of, that touch of home, right? Our roots are embedded in the music that we create, which is really specific for us as um, black British people, I think. So music has always been a big part of your life. Yeah, bro, honestly, like when it comes to me and music and what's so wild about the relationship that I have with music is it's underpinned everything for me. You know, some people are like football heads and sports heads and this heads. Me from a youth, collecting music wasn't interested in well I was a computer geek as well when I was young I wasn't interested in anything while everyone was out there playing sports I was in my room listening to tunes I didn't want to go anywhere because I was just listening to music my dad's a music man my mum's a music man my uncle's a sound man like literally I come from a long line of musical people I am not just a music lover I'm a music fanatic I am obsessed obsessed with it I love that. So you, so that was always something that you were kind of destined to go into in some way. 
Yeah, in some way. So, I mean, for me on the radio as a broadcaster, I I am a talk broadcaster, right? So what I do specifically yeah. is talk. So I speak a lot about black culture, but I don't think essentially you could do that without having some sort of understanding of music, the music that underpins our experience. So for me, like what's really good for me is I've got that talk experience from like being like a CBT therapist and all that kind of stuff. But because I'm a music maniac as well, I can do like my weekend show and have those really deep conversations. And then I can go and cover a music show in the daytime and know what I'm talking about. I can do an Afrobeat show and know the ins and outs of it, a dance show, an R&B show, just because of the things that I love. So it's being able to take something that really sits within you and create something as a result of it. Sure. You mentioned a couple of things there, like being a CBT therapist. So maybe take me on the journey of how you got to being where you are now, because I know that there's a lot of really interesting stops along the way. Yeah. So, I mean, if we're doing my whole life story, I'm going to try and condense it into a couple of minutes. I started off as somebody who was interested in computers, like I said, a computer geek. So everything I did in school, I was quite a high achiever in school, did really well, A's and that on my GCSEs and was really focused on computers. Went to college, a number of things happened in my life. I got kicked out of both colleges that I went to because I was just a bit of a rough you. I had a lot going on. And then I went into the probation service and did many years. I was a youth worker from the age of 16. So when I went into the probation service at 19, my youth work experience allowed me to go into that. And then I specialized in rehabilitation programs where you're, changed to, where you're trained to deliver CBT-based programs based on like domestic abuse or sexual abuse or violence or drink driving, all of that kind of stuff. Can you just define CBT just quickly? Co so, I'm so sorry, cognitive behavioral therapy. So basically what that is, is like your thoughts, feelings and behavior. If you're able to influence your thoughts, it has an impact on your feelings and then it has an impact on your behavior. So that's what CBT is, giving you relevant skills to change your behaviors or approaches to things. So I did that for years and then I was writing reports for court on people pretty successfully because none of the people I wrote reports on went to prison you know I kind of really like honed in on my community and was able to do a lot from that perspective but that and I'm saying all of this to say and this is short one last point I did all of that and those interviewing skills that I got from the criminal justice system allowed me to be a great broadcaster and interviewer and presenter because I picked up those skills that I used and used them with celebrities and you know your average like day people that you sit down and speak to amazing you know what, I actually really want to dig deep on some of those earlier years. I know that obviously it's not so much what you're doing now, but what yeah, I find yeah. really interesting, okay, let me speak for myself and the position that I'm in is one what I find so interesting. And I feel like there's always this constant duality for me. So f right now, full time, I work in tech. I work at this big tech startup, it's growing really fast. And before that I was working in corporate law. So again, it's this big, like, like one of the biggest firms in the world. So not in terms of humble bragging, but to say that the people that I'm surrounded by live in an entirely different world from the world that I grew up in. And when you just mentioned, okay, that you got kicked out of, uh, or, you know, you had trouble in college and all of that. No, stuff. I got kicked out. You're right. Okay. Kicked. You got kicked out. Okay. <laughs> but I was in that position as well. I got kicked out of school. Actually. Okay. Technically I left just before I got kicked out. They'd already arranged a school governor's meeting to decide whether or not I'd be kicked out. But I think I had 386 incident slips by the time I left. Oh, and this wow. is in year nine. This is in year nine. So I'd only been, <laughs> I'd only done two and a half years at that school before I had to leave. So, but, but what's crazy, at least for me, is that 
that's not the side of me that I really get to like represent <laughs> every yeah, day. Yeah, you know what same. I mean? yeah, that's definitely. not something that I'm gonna necessarily go around talking about. Not that it's a there's an issue with that, but not everyone gets it. And not everyone gets what life is like in certain areas or certain neighborhoods or so maybe tell me more about what life was like for you coming up in, in the area that you lived and, and what that experience was like. Yeah, I think I'm really lucky in that my parents tried to give me all that they did, all that they could. But I came from like kind of a poor background, really. I hate to be the stereotype, but you know, like all the latest trainers and all of that that the kids had in school, I didn't have none of that. My parents basically made sure there was always a computer in my house and we could go on holiday once a year if we possibly could. That was the luxury and everything else was just, you know, I went Deptford Market to buy my clothes. You know, that's why I got my school shoes from like shoe zone and that when, you know, people were pointing and laughing at them kind of shoes. But for me, like my parents were big on experiences and resources as opposed to making sure I'm in the latest fashion, you know, that kind of stuff. And we just couldn't afford it, bro. Like if it wasn't debt for market, we got it all on catalog and was having to pay two pound a week, you know, all of that. So I came from that and like an area that's considered really violent. I was in the midst of like real bad gangs and all of that. I'm from New Cross. If anyone knows what New Cross was in like late 90s, early 2000s, that was a crazy area to be a young person in, you know what I mean? To be a kid in. So like I come from that, man. I've lost a lot of my friends to murder. My cousin, and this is why I think I got kicked out of college. My cousin was murdered when I was 17. We were best friends, two weeks between us, you know, stabbed in the heart and that was it. So like, I just think when you come from those particular backgrounds where it's less about living and more about survival and trying to survive yeah. your childhood rather than trying to live your childhood and people don't get that it happens in these countries it provides you with a particular perspective but i think when you see so much hurt and pain in your community and i definitely saw it in my and joy and i don't want to labor the negative points we had sound systems come to our ends the kids all knew each other when we were really young my teacher in primary school was amazing and championed young black people. I was a gifted kid, very intelligent. Don't know what happened now, but you know, gifted child. He put me in like gifted child programs. I got moved up three years in school when I was like six, seven years old. You know, all of that. So there was a lot of positives that was happening in the ends, but the, the, the area, because it was so deprived and because there wasn't any, there wasn't enough resources. I think it has a direct impact on what you think you can be. You know what you want to be, but there's a difference between that and what you think you can be, right? So even going into youth work and community justice, I think a lot of that for me, bro, was attempting to try and heal my community in some way and find out what the hell was going on. Do you know what I mean? So it underpinned yeah. a lot, of, a lot of what I do, man. Yeah, so much of what you said resonated with me as well because mm. I think even with my background, for example. I don't even think I necessarily, I didn't grow up in like the, the roughest area. Okay, when I first came to the UK, we lived in Lewisham and then we lived in Penn. So ends, we're moving ends, around ends, again. Ends. Yeah. <laughs> and then we moved to North London, which is, you know, in, in many ways like nicer or safer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, I think, I don't know if it's just the kind of school that I went to or the, the maybe the kind of people that you clump to. But even from what you were saying, I think you just see a lot at a very young age. Like I remember... Even yeah. year seven, year eight, my first day of secondary school, I was in a fight. So I was I was in detention from day one. And that already sets the trend of, you know, <laughs> where you're going to be going. Because those are the first people that you meet is everyone else that's in detention. And then yeah, that's yeah, yeah. those are your new friends. 
now <laughs> you're in detention like half the days of the week, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and you're going to find- On report. You know, yeah, exactly. I, I was on report. Actually, I was on report from long before that. Same. But Four years a, I spent on report. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, mine was probably longer, if I'm honest. That, that's why I'm, I'm happy to be where I am now. But I feel cool. like I was extremely fortunate. So like what you were saying, I think, you know, I was bright. I was in like top sets for everything. But I think part of, part of the issue actually for me was when I came from Nigeria, I was actually like two classes ahead. And as we were moving around, because obviously maybe it took a bit of time to settle. I think when I first came, my mom couldn't come with us because she needed to sort out her visa. So it was just me and my dad. Then my mom came after. So, you know, there's a lot of transition there. Mm. And in that time, I think as you move to different schools, then they're like moving you back. They're saying, oh, we want you to be with your age mates or all of this. So by the time I've moved school, I think at least twice now in the UK. So this is now my third, even primary school. I'm doing stuff that I've already done in this class. So, man. so I'm bored. So I'm not yeah. really paying attention. I don't need to focus. I don't need to concentrate. And that's what leads to misbehavior. It leads to all these other Eight things. Cents. But what I'm interested in is because I remember... When I joined secondary school, I, co I couldn't tell you what it was, like how I ended up getting into so much trouble. I just think it, a lot of it is just your environment and the kind of things that you see, you get see, you see, you know, you go to fights, people bring knives, even from like 11, 12, 13 years old, you're seeing all of that. You're exposed to a lot of that. And I know that for me, I was very fortunate in that I feel like I got in so much trouble so young if I was getting in that trouble at 16, I, I wouldn't be here today. That's what I can tell you. Yeah. But because I was getting in that kind of trouble at like 12, 13. <laughs> well, you was already, young. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I already had my final police warning. I already had all of that stuff from very young. So yeah. I already knew. So I remember getting told that if I got in trouble again, if like, I think that was like my last warning. So it was the earlier of five years or when you turn 18 that you have like this temporary record for so you're just so now i have to be good now it's by force yeah but the policing of young people and i think the problem that i have with that right is nobody everyone wants to view the young person as a problem but never wants to get to the root of the issue so like, why is hmm. this person acting out in the way that they are because for me i started moving mad because i got bored of everyone taking the fmp out of me you know what I mean? I got bored of it. Mm. I was like, yeah, like, cause I'm quite a soft natured, loving person. I am very, like I'm a big softy, a proper care bear. I always say it, but like growing up in a particular environment like that doesn't do anything for you. So you get to a point where you're like, you know what? People keep t taking me for a mug and I'm sick of it. So no one wanted to see my softness in school in terms of the teachers. All they saw was me running my mouth. But I experienced bullying from pupils and teachers. So you get to a point where you're mm. like 14 and you're like, no, I'm not having this. Are you mad? I'm not a fool. So I got to a point where I was like, I've had enough. None of you are going to sit down and ask me what's wrong. You all want to act like I'm a problem. All right, cool. Let me be a problem for you. And yeah. that's the way it went, man. So how did you find that you were able to remove yourself from that? Because So that was the point I was going to get to. For me, I feel like I was lucky because it was forced. Like I was forced to move school yeah. and it was either. So my dad ended up having to take a loan. So when I left, I told you about how many incident slips I had. So yeah. And you said police as well. <laughs> yeah. So no, no, no other school in my borough would take me. So my dad had to get a loan and I had to go to like an international school that was still in my area. Otherwise we'd have to move house again and move to a whole different area. So I was very fortunate in retrospect that I kind of got 
uprooted from that situation and just got moved somewhere else completely. And now I have to make new friends and now I have to do it all again. And that gave me a fresh start. And all of a sudden, within like half a year, now I'm in Gifted and Talented. Now I'm doing this. Now I'm doing that. All Come kinds on. of flourishing comes from that. So I'm interested, like for you, particularly also at the age that you were, like how did you find that you were able to go from a place where, you know, you start where you're getting in trouble, you're getting involved in all kinds of things. And then you go from there to now you're being able to help other people. You're helping other young people. You're doing the CBT related things. How do you make that? I found friends who saved me. So I made friends. I had a friendship group when I was about 17 who loved me unconditionally and helped me through my pain. And if I didn't have them, I don't know who I'd be right now. They completely, and I wrote about them. The Black Joy book that came out, like I wrote a, I wrote a chapter in it and I spoke about them because they completely changed my life. You know, so I was, I'd say the, the way I was able to do that is I found my tribe, right? I found a group of people that loved me like family and that completely changed my life. And I had a mum and dad who completely loved me and removed pressure from me. They said to me, yo, Richie, like, after going through like the murder of my cousin and stuff, they were a bit like, you know what? As my son, I want to see you. Your happiness is paramount. We can see you're in a bad place. It's not about achieving right now. It's about being a happy person and healing yourself. So my parents removed that pressure and I felt a lot freer. So I'd say that's what spanned me around. Like having parents who really loved me and supported me and having a friendship group that embraced every single part of who I am. That's so true. And I think what you just said also speaks to how big of an impact the people that you either are surrounded with or the people that you intentionally surround yourself with, how big of an impact they make on your life and your trajectory. Definitely, man. I was someone who just didn't take no for an answer. So like when I got kicked out of my first college call and then I became an IT manager at 16, you know, <laughs> IT manager at some a racial equality organisation that does fantastic work called the 1990 Trust. And then I went, the day my cousin was murdered, I went to, I went and signed up to college. So I, I knew I wanted to achieve something, right? And then I got kicked out of that college. And then I spent a year raving, got tired of it and was like, I need to get a job now. So I got a job in it. And even through that time where I was just raving, I was still volunteering as a youth worker. So I always had something okay. to do. I like to be occupied doing something, right? So even with all of that stuff going on, I was always looking at, a, I was always wanting to do something. And it was just lucky that I was doing things that led me to being who I am now. Okay. Did you end up going to like finishing college or going to university? No, I did uni later on in life, you know? So I okay. did uni as an adult through my job, but I didn't go to uni. Wow. I didn't finish college. I wasn't on it. I just went into work. I love that. <laughs> What's well, interesting, right? I was just going to say, like, in terms of, and I think this is what's really important. I'm not saying, oh, don't finish school and don't finish university. I think they are fantastic people. They're a fantastic thing, sorry, to have under your, your belt, right? But, you know, if you are unable to go to university and you are unable to go to college, you really can achieve. Like, I, I didn't do that. I wasn't able to finish that. And I'm still successful sometimes more successful than people who have gone through all of that. And maybe in a few years, they'll be more successful than I am. But there's always hope, man. There is always hope. Absolutely, man. Like I didn't, I didn't finish my degree either. So well, I say either you, you did yours. So. <laughs> later on. I, later I didn't. On. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I'm hoping, you know, my dad says it will, but I'm hoping it doesn't come back to bite me. But I, I think that's a big thing because, and it really does tie into what we were talking about, about like upbringings and stuff, because I also think that, 
we are conditioned to believe that there's only one way to become successful. Exactly. And then it becomes very difficult to create your own path outside of that because there's very much a situation where even from school, teachers are already looking for who's supposed to be the brightest kids. And then they are pigeonholing them into, okay, you're bright. Now you're going to apply to Oxford or Cambridge. You guys go over here. The rest of you kids, you know, figure it out for yourself. And, and this is the only way you have to go from, from, secondary school you go to sixth form you go from sixth form you go to university like this is the way and so maybe I'd, I'd love to hear from you about how you found that process of figuring it out for yourself because I can imagine I, well I don't know how many people were in a similar position to you but I can imagine that very often it can be a bit isolating because maybe you see some people that you grew up with that are taking one particular path or going the complete opposite way because you are still aspirational. You're still trying to build something. And I think what you typically get, what you typically get is on one hand, there's the people that just leave the system completely and they're not doing any of that. And then on the other hand, you get people that are following the traditional route and it looks like they're progressing and it looks like they mm. are doing things the normal way. David, you know what I was trying to build, but I didn't know what, you know, I was just going on vibes. <laughs> I was just like, it's just vibes. I, I need to be occupied with something. What am I good at? Oh, let me go and do that. So like my life probably properly was just vibes. At the, I didn't know what I was working towards. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I literally just took the opportunities that were presented in front of me. And little by little, those opportunities took me in a particular direction. So, you know, some people are like, yo, this is my life. This is who I'm going to be. And when I am 45 years of age, this is, I said, I just want to be alive. So yeah. as long as I'm alive and I've got some money in the bank, I'll be happy. So basically like even, so you see the probation thing. I said, I went into criminal justice. I don't remember applying for the job. I got an um, interview letter and I was like, oh, sick. Like, all right, let's go in. So I went yeah. in an admin and then doing the cognitive behavioral therapy groups came up, a job came up. So I just applied, bro. I was only 20, you know, young. So mm. 21, I went into that job doing CBT therapy with grown adults, murderers, baddest man on road, all of that. I was really young, but it was just vibes. And then the next step into broadcasting, somebody believed in me and was like, yo, have you ever thought about doing a podcast? I've seen you online. I did a panel event. He was like, you're wicked at panels. Have you ever thought about doing a podcast? I was like, yeah, of course I have. David lies. I didn't even think about that, <laughs> but I was just vibes in, you know what I mean? Because yeah. I thought I want to get in there somehow. Did a podcast. It was a success. As a result of the podcast, got brought on to do another one on the BBC. And then it was like, well, these podcasts are amazing. Do you want to come and do one extra talks? And here I am, you know? So it was David is vibes. I want to act like it's some, yeah, I deeply did a plan. I was vibes, yeah. man. <laughs> hard work, but vibes. Yeah, exactly. I think that's it. It's, it's two things. One is hard work. And two is the consistency. And I think that's also the part that you showed as well, which is... Okay, there's vibes in that you're just figuring things out as you go along, but you're also building skills intentionally. Like, even if you land in a position that you may not have planned to be in, while you're there, you're picking up skills and then you're leveraging them to get the next thing. That is it. And that's not always easy, to be honest, David. I think like we live in this myth now and you see it a lot online that we live in some kind of meritocracy. And I don't necessarily believe that. I mean, hard work, if if hard work paid off, then all of those people who are out there do it cleaning for 13, 14 hours a day would be the richest people on earth, right? So I think, you, you know, like hard work doesn't always pay off if we look at capitalism, classism and all of that kind of stuff. And we'll probably get to that a bit later on in the conversation. But I would say I've been really lucky and my luck 
and maybe some of my my achievements when I was young and you know my maybe tenacity were the things that paid off for me Absolutely. you can't tell me you no said- man no, I love that. I, I, I think the exact same way. And I think you said two really important things there. One was about meritocracy. And it's so interesting because I wrote about this in my in my newsletter a while ago, but I genuinely think that meritocracy exists for the people that believe in it. And that's not a, uh, you know, speak what you want into the world kind of thing that I'm saying. But what I'm saying is I genuinely think a lot of it is about mindset and not that some people don't have the right mindset I don't want to couch this too much but my point basically being that I genuinely think if you grow up in a kind of environment where one you see a lot of role models you see people that look like you that have confidence they have audacity they have certain skills they're attractive all of those things you already believe it's possible then you're taught that oh if you just work hard it's possible I think it becomes very easy to adopt that worldview because it looks like it's possible because you see so many examples of people that look just like you doing those things. And it looks like, oh, if I just work hard. And so I genuinely think that a lot of people do believe that. But the reason they believe that is because they were brought up to believe that. And I think they don't necessarily, they only have the perspective that they have. Whereas I think other people that have grown up in different circumstances also have the perspective that as much as you might want to work hard, there are other things, there are systematic and institutional things that can prevent you from getting things that you want. And so I think it is equally important to have that mindset where you don't take no for an answer, 100% important. That's been one of the biggest keys to success for me and I know for you as well. But I also think you have to be able to recognise that there are other things. It's not that these things will stop you. And I don't think that you should have these limiting beliefs that, oh my gosh, as hard as I work, you know, I'm not going to be able to make it because of the police or because of schools or because of whatever system is in place. You can work around that, but there is just inherent in the society that we have. Unfortunately, not everyone that works hard or has those beliefs will have equal amounts of success. The majority of people... Will not, and that's mm. how capitalism and classism works. The majority. So what ends up happening for me, David, is they they hold up these very specific examples and say, look at this person who is very amazing and they worked very hard and look what they can achieve. For one Richie Brave, there are probably about a hundred Richie Braves out there that are probably better at me and more talented than I am and more intelligent than I am, but they weren't lucky enough to have the opportunities that I did. So I'd say mm. hard work has definitely been a factor in in my in my journey but i am under no i'm under no illusions that there are probably lots of men out there my age had the same opportunities that i had but just work or ha- have all the same skills and better than i have but just weren't lucky enough to have the same opportunities for me that's why open as i did so that's why opening the door is really important for me absolutely i, I definitely agree and i think even from what you were saying luck is also the other important thing and Every, every successful person, however you want to think about it for yourself, every person that has some success has luck, loads and loads of luck. For me, for everyone that I know, whether you acknowledge it or not, everything that's ever happened in your life has been some form of luck. You don't, you're not, you're not born and you decide that, you know, every decision that goes in your favor has to be that way. And everything that you write has to be perfect. Like none of those things are things you can predetermine. Those are things that happen to you. And But I think the one thing you can do and and you've done is that you can put yourself in a position to 
benefit from luck when it happens. So yeah. you can like, bro, I'm one of the luckiest people alive. <laughs> no, for real. But you, you, you have to be. You have to be, and you have to like build your skills. And like you said, because this is the other side of of what you said as well. I can equally imagine that as much as there's a hundred Richie Braves that have that wouldn't even get the opportunities that you might have had just because of luck. There's also a thousand Richie Braves that have been in that position where someone might suggest something or there's a, an opportunity that comes up and they're not inquisitive or they don't capitalize oh, yeah, on that opportunity yeah, yeah. and they don't seize the moment. And that happens so much, whether it's because we have something in our minds that says, I can't do this or I'm not good enough. Or sometimes maybe there are people that are just don't have that same, maybe like hunger or the same ambition that you might have or had. confidence to seize. sometimes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so people don't always seize on the opportunities that exist. So I think, yeah, it's, it's the, there's two factors. One is that we don't create enough opportunities in the first place. Two is that, okay, it's actually three things. Two is that we don't do a good enough job of signposting opportunities because there's loads of things that exist. And this, you know, this is going back to something else that you mentioned that it made me think about is that I think... The, one of the biggest issues that we have, and this is why maybe classism and some of these other things still play such a big factor, is because going back to what I said before, where we're taught to believe there's only one way, so long as we believe that there's only one definition of what success looks like, there's only there's a limited opportunities to be that version of success. Yeah. When they hold up one person and they say, you know, oh, you know, they did X, Y, Z, they graduated with this, they did that, they did this master's, they got this job. Okay, there's only limited numbers of people that can do that exact path. But that's not the only way to be successful. I can make my own path and be successful and do well. And I think we don't necessarily emphasize that enough. The the possibility of everyone building their own version of success. Definitely, and that is, what I, uh, that is what I think is so important. Success is relative and it changes by generation as well. Success for my grandparents would just being able to survive this England, like, because it's so, it was so racist when they, and it's still proper racist, but they couldn't even get homes and that, right? So success for them was just survival. For success for my parents' generation, a lot of them was just having a home that they can call their own and that they can buy. For our generation, it's being a homeowner and having the dream and having, what is it? six figures that people talk about all the time on the TL yeah. and stuff, you know? So I think success is dependent. It, it changes. I, I had a conversation recently about young black youth, right? And it was about like allowing young black people to reimagine and to dream and just dream about a future for themselves. And I think that's so important. We're so, so fixed on putting these people in boxes that we don't allow them to dream up a future for themselves. So I think what you have touched on quite rightly is continuing to push man and you know, when it's young people coming up, or even if it's people your age or older, keeping the door open to people, man, like not gatekeeping your experience, giving people a door in or a foot into what you're doing and allowing them to see it and feel it, experience it and do it for themselves. Absolutely. And it's so funny that you mentioned the six figure thing, because I was thinking about it on my way, on my way home. <laughs> I was thinking about it at the train station. But it's so funny how that is a legitimate people. There's a lot of people that think they are not successful. They will be miserable because they don't make six figures. And when you break that down, first of all, people are talking about six figures in terms of salary. And people have this idea that, oh my gosh, this I need to be making six figures. Okay, but in England, if you get six figures salary, you're not getting paid six figures. You're getting paid like 55K-ish or so, you know. 
okay, so it's it's not the situation. That's a lot of money, though. No, what I'm saying is people are obsessed with this status of what they think is success, and that's not even what it is. First of all, it's like half of that. And so, okay, so is it the is it 55k that you need, or is what you actually wanted the real ambition behind what you label it as that you just want to be comfortable and you just want to be happy so that's that's what i'm trying to get at is that sometimes because we put this certain label that we have to achieve x really what you're asking what you want isn't x that's not actually what you want when you break it down and you think about it properly that's not what you want and so when you break down okay this is the core of what I need. I just mm. want to have some form of financial freedom. I don't want to be, you know, counting my purse every time I go to buy eggs. <laughs> you know, there, there's a much smaller exactly. version of what you need. Then you can think about, okay, how else can I do that? Maybe there's plenty of other ways without making loads of money or without, obviously I want everyone to make money, but without, you know, I, I also think, you know, Earning six figures, there's potentially a limited number of professional careers that you can do that in. You can definitely do it in creative fields or other ways. But it's, if you're thinking about professional careers, there's a limited number of fields. And so you have everyone trying to squeeze into one pair of shoes because they think that this is what you have to do to be happy. But there's so many other things you can do. I want some more money though, David. <laughs> Same. <laughs> no, but, okay, but part, part of the reason I was thinking about it is because joke, joke, I, it's not even like I was, I'm making loads and loads of money, but I feel like I'm okay. Yeah, you got financial freedom. Yeah. Yeah, like I feel like there's an extent to which, okay, as much as I might want more money and I'm tr- actively trying to make it, I feel like I am more comfortable than some people that are striving to earn more then I'm making, and I'm like, well, you don't even need to make that because I'm not making that and I'm fine. Like, you could be much happier than you think you need to be. Money, like, but money buys choice and it buys options, but I just don't mm. think it's the one thing we should be focused on, right? Like, I think sometimes societies become so, in- this is me being over deep. Richie, why are you like this? But do you know what, yeah? Like, we become so individualistic. And so I want to earn six figures and I want to be successful and this is who I want to be. And I'm a bit like, you know, you come from a whole community, right? So mm. that it isn't just about us and achieving and getting six figures. It's also about how we bring everybody else up as well. Like chasing this capitalistic dream. I'm not saying don't t- chase the dream and don't chase success and don't want to be successful and have financial freedom. Why not? Why shouldn't you want that? But I feel like the story is much bigger than that. And we have to just move from being so individual and start to look around us. Absolutely. And even what you were saying, like, I don't even think you need money to have choices. Like, okay, I don't know how how much money they're paying you, but you have two jobs and you're able to, <laughs> my, my point is between the things that you do, you're able to create space for yourself. You're able to give yourself choices and options and you've kind of built a life that works for you. That is not, there's no blueprint for what you're doing right now. There's no, yeah, yeah. there's no box you can take and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to take this life. You have to build that for yourself. But my yeah. point is that just like you have built this particular world that you live in, there's other people that could carve out little worlds for themselves where they can have a balance of the things that are important to them. I want to go to what you were just saying in terms of this community All right, let's talk. (laughs) Okay, so I want to draw the connection and then you can extrapolate on this between... Okay, it's a a two-part question. On, On one side is, what do you think is the importance of you being where you are as a presenter? 
and being able to talk about these deep community issues. Because I see you talking about all kinds of things. You talk about gender-related issues. You talk about, you know, the streets and, and violence-related issues. You talk a vast range of things. What do you think is the importance of having this kind of platform that you have to be able to speak into those things? And then also maybe on a community level, how do you think that we can better either interact or collaborate to be able to improve some of those situations? I think where I'm at now, I have I have a national megaphone, right? So One Extra is a national radio station. And we champion black communities and black issues, the things that black people experience across the UK, right? So I would say having a platform like that, like One Extra Talks, allows us to have a collective conversation across the black communities, across black communities. And each community is different. Right, Black people in Wales are going to be different to Scotland. They're going to be different to England. Leeds is going to be different to London. Birmingham is going to be different to Manchester, all of that. like So for me, it's being able to collectively have a conversation about Black communities and experiences and bring people together. That is what's really important to me. That was the first part of the question. The second part of the question, I forgot. You know, I want to go in a different <laughs> direction first. Then we'll go back to that. All right, let's do it, man. Because, okay, I have a... I have a surface level question before I get to the real question. Is yeah. one extra for black people specifically? Yes. Okay. Because what I'm interested in, okay, I saw you had a post on Instagram where you were talking about how you feel like on one hand, people are told that you have to build a profile on social media and you have to get all these followers to be able to, you know, increase your presence and all of that. But it can also be a trap. And so I'm interested in your perspective on, I want to know the backstory behind that, but I also want to know maybe potentially how that might tie to the fact that you're a presenter on the British Broadcasting Corporation, like BBC. This is not Choice FM. This is not, you know, pirate radio from some corner of Peckham. <laughs> you're on like a, a national stage, like you say. And how do you feel that you can have this authenticity where you talk about yourself and you're real and you dig deep into these important conversations, but you're also cognizant of the platform itself that you're on, if that makes sense. Yeah. If you're working with me, you ain't got no choice. I'm going to be myself and I'm going to be out here. So that kind of just is what it is. You brought me onto the BBC knowing who the hell I am. So I'm not about to change who I am. I think I've had to be smarter in the way that I present things and maybe hold myself to account more. So I, if you're on a platform like the BBC, if you say something, you need to be able to back up what you're saying with facts. You can't just be shooting from the hip and chatting. I need to be able to say, here are the articles related to what I'm saying right now. Or here is the study that reinforces what I'm saying right now. So I think that's what it's, it's made me more robust. But I ain't going to change you. It's maybe refined me a little bit. I've refined myself. It hasn't refined me, actually. So I've had to refine myself a little bit more to make sure that if I am held to account, I can say, yo, like here's the backup for what I'm saying. You know what I mean? But there's no balance for me, to be honest, David. I'm, I mean, if we're talking about the social media thing to go to that, I'm just not that guy, man. Like, I'm not an Instagram guy. I'm proper not. Like, I don't like really... I take pictures of myself sometimes, but I don't really like it. And then when I go on Instagram, I don't really know what to say, but I want to be able to interact with people and have fun. And everything I do on One Extra Talks is always so serious. And I'm a proper joker. And I'm slack. And I swear. And I'm... 
I, there's this whole part of me that I guess people don't see that I want to put on social media, but I'm just lazy as hell. So like everyone's like, if you want to grow as a broadcaster or you want to grow a media career, you have to get better at social media, Instagram specifically. And I'm not great at it. Like I love to go and chat crap on Twitter, but when it comes to like curating a video, I'm not great at it, bro. Like I'm not, and I, I need to get better at it, I guess, but I'm an introvert at heart and People that always know that about me, like I'm, I'm great at presenting because that's what I do. That's my job. But outside of that, I re I really like being on my own. I can spend three weeks in my house on my own. Absolutely fine. Yeah. You know, I think so, I'm exactly the same, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> man, it's hard. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the funny thing. It's, it's really difficult because, okay, so I think there's, there's two things I can say. One, in general, it's really difficult because once you start, once you build a particular profile of yourself, you kind of then have to live up to that. And that becomes your identity. And you have to you have to follow that path. Not necessarily, but that is what No, no, the, for a lot of people. Yeah. Not that's for what me, the algorithms are pushing you to do. That's what... Yeah, yeah, And yeah, also, yeah, yeah. one thing I will say is also that it also creates an expectation because there's people that are following you, particularly if you're getting thousands and thousands of followers. Now people are expecting something from you. As an example, even when I started my newsletter, I remember... Okay, now I think it's going well. I can write stuff every week. Fantastic. But it was really hard at first because one, you start with this great intention of, oh my gosh, I'm going to do all of this. And then you realize that sometimes you're tired. Sometimes life is happening. Sometimes other <laughs> things are going on and it's difficult. And then people are emailing you, strangers, people that I've never met are emailing you saying, what's happening? Where's the, where's this week's newsletter? What's going on? Yeah. Are you okay? Is something happening? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to rest. <laughs> and so I think there's, there's that. Yeah, exactly. So there's that difficulty as well. But like you say, it's also hard when it has this great potential to push your career forward and to give you momentum that you might not have had otherwise. You know what though, to be honest with you, I had I built my whole career by being myself. And that's why I think I'm lucky. So everything I've like I Twitter built my career, to be honest. Me just talking on Twitter and connecting with people and then moving into entertainment and stuff. But I would say I've always been myself. I've never had to put on a persona. Like kind of what you see of me online is what you see offline as well. And like, you can't be an introvert on Twitter because you're talking. So you never know whether someone's an introvert or an extrovert, right? It kind of is what it is. Yeah. And I'm very friendly in person as well. That's just who I am. The things I've spoken about, I've been talking about like socioeconomic issues in black communities. I was out here marching when I was 16. You know what I mean? So this isn't a new thing to me. I was talking about all these issues as soon as I got a Twitter account. I got a Twitter account. My first one was 2009. And then I think I came off and in 2000 and maybe 11, 10, I, w I was talking about all of these issues. So this isn't new to me. I haven't had to change myself. Who, my career has grown with me as a person rather than mm -hmm. me having to grow in a particular way in order to get a career. It's all happened organically. So I'm lucky. No one can say to me, oh, Richie, you're a sellout. Or Richie, oh my God, I didn't know you was this kind of person. You already knew I was a piece of crap. So, I mean... I have to change. You know what it is. You know my flaws. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay, but how much harder do you think it is to be authentically yourself and speak on things in the same way when you have a national platform? Because it's one thing to talk on Twitter and it's another thing to speak on the radio just because the other part of it is the feedback. On Twitter, it's, it's limited. Like, it's people that follow you. You can go on private. There's, there's some ways in which you can constrain who sees what you say. You could even just write in your diary. That's, you know, it's different. Radio, you're speaking into a mic 
I'm not even sure if you know, as you're talking, how many people are listening at that exact moment. And you only know when you get the responses and you get people calling you. And so you get people <laughs> jumping on to tell you about yourself <laughs> live and, they, and they're speaking to you. And then you get people that are in your Instagram comments and all those other places. So how do you deal with that part of things? Oh, they're pretty. People are pretty nice, to be honest with you. But it's hard. It's hard. In, in being in the BBC, when you do something on the BBC, you follow impartiality guidelines, right? So we're all people. We've all got our views. We've all got our perspectives on things. But as a broadcaster on a national radio station, then you have to be impartial. Not about everything. You don't have to be impartial about racism. If racism exists, then you can call that out and you can say what you need to say based on it, right? But when you're talking about politics, that can be difficult sometimes because you can't force people or you can't be seen to influence people to vote for a, a particular political party. So you have to be very mindful of what you share about your own personal views online. That can become difficult because when I started out, I was gunning the conservatives. Doesn't matter what party you're from, you're all getting guns. So maybe that's impartiality, you know what I mean? I'm gunning everyone, but... You know, that's been hard. Like, I have to be careful about what I say politically. I can make critiques of the government, but you also have to be very careful that you're not influencing political opinion because you are part of a national broadcaster. So that is a line that I think has had to be difficult on reflection now you've asked me the question. But aside from that, I'm myself, David. And you know what I said? I'm going to keep moving mad until I get feedback that tells me not to. You know what I mean? So I'm like, yo, I'm going to keep pushing, 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 pushing. When I get that email... <laughs> Richie yeah. Brave conversation. We need to have a conversation. Then maybe I'll see what happens next. But yeah, I'm just, I'm working on vibes still, man. So if you lot don't hear me on the radio in six months time, you know I've said something, man. <laughs> I hear that. And so how do you feel about, I know you mentioned before, keeping the door open for other people that are trying to come up. And even like I was saying, I think radio is such an interesting thing where I'm not even sure, but loads of people want to do that when they're coming up and people are young. I guess it's because like I like we were talking about, music is such a big part of our, our culture yeah. and not just music, but some of these conversations. So how do you like feel about and act on being able to hold the door open for other people? So important to me. I I'm, can be really rubbish at getting back to people. I'm just being transparent. So for me, because I'm busy, you know, I'm doing two jobs in it. And sometimes I can work up to 70 hours a week. And that's what I think people don't understand. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'm getting 50 emails in a day. It's not just one or two. Some people are, oh, I've reached out to you to come on a podcast or I've reached out to you to come and do this. I'm like, yo, like, I, I manage myself. I don't have an agent. I manage my own inbox. Everything you see is I am the machine. There's no other machine behind me. I do it all. You know, so keeping the door open, I when I do it wherever and whenever I can. So bringing people in, I can do that. I'm always like, I'll go and talk to youth groups. I have charity. So a section of my wages every month goes towards charitable things. So I always, I've always done that, you know. So I've always try and make sure that there's something community-based embedded in what I do. And I would like to do more. So I'm in the process of carving out time right now to be able to get some streams work streams in that can bring more people in. But when people are like, oh, I want to have a conversation about presenting, I'm like, yo, let's jump on Zoom. If they don't sort out the Zoom, I, I'm too busy. I can't sort out the Zoom. But if they're saying, are you free on the 11th of April at 7 p.m.? And if I am free, yes, send me a calendar invite. Boom, we're in. You know what I mean? But I, I, I just think keeping the doors open is really important. People safeguard and they, what's the word? 
gatekeep the positions they're in, the jobs that they do. They don't talk to young people or people their own age group or people older than them that want to come in. They get very precious about things and I'm not like that. Ask me about what I do. Ask me how I got into what I can, what I did. Ask me about my pathways, how you can get into it. I'm more than happy to sit down and have those conversations. It's so interesting because I feel like I, I definitely agree and I think it's so important to hold the door open and to provide all those opportunities. But just to touch on something you were saying, I, one thing I really want to say, and I'm saying this to people who are listening, is that you also have to like come correct. And I think there's a part that sometimes what I find difficult <laughs> is there are some people that are coming to ask you something and it feels like you're not actually trying to do this for yourself. You are just asking people just throw out a question. How do I do X? You don't give me any background information. You don't tell me anything about what you're doing, what you're working. Like, you have to have some ownership and some agency of what it is that you're trying to do. I think, I, I just think this generally. Yeah. And even like what you were saying, following up is a huge thing. That is that is a skill. And I'm not saying this in a a way to denigrate anyone that doesn't, but I'm saying this was something I was not good at when I was in uni for the two years that I was there. And so when I was in uni and when I was very young, I'm not saying that I was good at these things either. I'm saying these are things that I've learned. Just in the same way that you've mentioned, I love to do these things. I've I've spent so much of my life like doing community programs, helping people, all of that. Sometimes I'm busy. Sometimes I miss things. But literally just the power of following up, sending a follow-up email, chasing on things. Yeah. So many people don't do that. That's a huge thing. There's someone that um, I agree. literally works at my company right now that sent me an <laughs> email one day. He's, he literally was following me on Twitter. I think he from he only heard about the startup that I work at because I mentioned it in my newsletter. And now he works here. So it works. That's but amazing. I'm not going to say that the first time, like he had to send me two messages, but the second message yeah. that I replied. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah. so, but that's that's part of it. I think part of it is just when you actually have ownership over sometimes, I think, and one thing I've written about is the difference between like sinking and swimming or, or swimming and thrashing, right? And swimming being, even if you're heading in the wrong direction, just intentionally just taking strokes and just trying to head somewhere. Whereas yeah. I think very often the default, and even for me, and I've, and I've been in this position as well, is where you're just thrashing and you're, you feel maybe like lost and confused and you don't have direction and you're just trying to reach for anything and anyone and just trying to make something work, but you don't oh. actually have anything in mind. And so sometimes I feel like people are just throwing things out there just to see what hits and to see, yeah. you know, if something comes out of it. And a bit of respect is so important for me, David. Like people reach out mm. to me like, oh, put me on your show. I'm like, oh, cool. Like, oh, you listen. What's been your favorite show? Oh, I've never listened before. And you're like, what? Like you're demanding me to put you on a show. And maybe like it's something that could happen if there's a subject matter or like that overlaps, but you've never listened to it. You've never supported it. You've never retweeted it. And my show is a black community focused show, you know? Like it's trying to create change in the community. And I get, if someone says to me, realistic, I've never listened to the show. I'm going to, you know, check it out. And, but it's like, put me on your show. You need to have me on your show. You're coming with that energy. And then you're like, and I'm like, oh, wicked. Like what's been your favorite like episode? Like what, what have you listened? Oh, I've never listened to it before. And you're a bit, so you don't respect what I'm attempting to do here, but you want to be part of it. You don't even know what my show's about. And you're demanding that I place you on it. It doesn't make sense to me. It feels a bit disrespectful. Me and the production yeah. team put enough time into this. And you just want to walk on and not even say, oh, like I've got this subject and I think it'd be really good for the show. And 
I'd really like to come on and speak about it. That is fine. But when you mm. come with put me on your show energy, literally put me on, fine. If you can tell me about what the show's about, let's talk. Yeah. I hate it. Come prepared, man. And just respect I- the person you're talking to. And even with questions you have, it makes such a difference when you actually, when people actually have specific questions. If you have a specific question that I can answer, then yeah, I will yeah, give yeah. you all the answers you need. Send me as many Always. questions as you like. But some people just will ask the most vague, you know, how do I become successful? Or, you know, how am I going to tell you? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I can't tell you any of this stuff. <laughs> tell me. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's... But that's why it's important as well. Like, first of all, it's great that you have the platform that you have and the position that you have and the visibility that you have, that people are able to see that and they're able to, you know, hope that they can emulate that and they're able to ask questions and able to send you things. And simultaneously, I think the other part is, yeah, it's an example of, you know, what is possible and the things that you can do. I'm interested to know, okay, if you did not end up doing what you're doing now, like what path do you think you would have gone on Way, yoy, what would i be doing maybe something in computers okay yeah it'd be computer programming or it would be music production i like to produce it'd probably be music focused to be honest with you it'd be okay. something to do with music do you still or dabble in computers in, or did you drop that completely from i kind of dabble sometimes sometimes i'm about to start a coding kind of teaching so i used to do turbo pascal used to be able to write that javascript all of that kind of stuff i'm a little bit rusty so i'm gonna go back because coding's a thing now right so yeah i'm gonna go and try and learn it man but yeah i'm not in it as much as i used to be or i might be in prison you never know david could be prison for me you know we both spoke about our childhoods (laughs) who knows where i could have been (laughs) you know what The, the coding thing is so funny though because i remember so I learned to code like all these random, I, I had all these books about like JavaScript, MySQL, C++, but yeah. that is not when coding was a thing. That was not, I don't know anyone that actually did that as a job. Well, at least coming from where we came from, maybe that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that I never thought of that as, oh, this is a job I can do. I was just doing it so I could make money selling websites. Like I was yeah, doing yeah, this yeah. just to, as a skill that I could use to make money. And I didn't take it any further than that. And it's so funny how I didn't even see the connection between learning that and I don't know, like technology in on yeah. a much wider scale until tech became a popular thing. And you had Facebook and you had social media and you had all of those things. And now everyone wants to be in tech. Oh, now I'm in tech. So I think that's another funny piece. You might as well. got any job? <laughs> we do for anyone listening. But what's funny is that, that that goes back to what we were saying before, right? About how you don't always see the opportunities and you don't always see the amount of doors that are open. And not even for us, but even for other people and for the community at large. I think it's a point where if you don't have people that can signpost those things for you, if you don't have people that can say, oh, if you're interested in coding, yo, yo, you know, there's so many jobs that you could do. There's so many opportunities that can come out of this skill that you have or this talent that you have or this thing that you're interested in. And I think that exists in so many areas of the community where I don't think, or because maybe not often enough, people are pointed in a particular way to have an outlet for some of their interests, then people just don't see it as viable and they just never go there. Yeah, it makes complete sense to me. And that's why leaving the door open is important, right? Sometimes you need to let people know that the door is there. Yeah. So what's next for you? You're not going to become an Instagram baddie overnight? Uh, Yeah. Well, you know, (laughs) if I get my body right, you never know, you know. 
if that six pack is popping and the yash is popping, then you might, you lot might see me some shorts or something. You know what I mean? But I I think can sit like continuing down the broadcasting route. To be honest, for me, I love it. I really love media. I really love radio. I love it. Maybe TV. You never know. But radio is my love. I love having conversations. So my ultimate dream, and I think a lot of people have this this dream, is to be like a Oprah or like Piers Morgan, but not a dickhead. You know what I mean? Just like let's be real. I feel like we're still in kind of dick. I think we're still in dickhead territory there. Yeah, I don't know. Like, well, I'm saying I don't know. I think he's a bit of a dickhead. But I just like I I want to be somebody that people come to to have conversations, right? So if you've gone through something in your life or you have a story to ta- tell, I want to be the person to be able to explore that. So I definitely like journalism, kind of conversations and all of that kind of stuff. Broadcasting's next for me. What's next for you, David? Do people ever ask you that? Because I'd love to know. That's a good question. I'm actually not sure. <laughs> it's weird. Are I you think, vibes in as well? Kind of. Because I think that's the other thing. Like going back to what we talked about, I've taken a very unconventional route. There's no there's no box you can tick to get where I am. Like I did one thing, I led led to another thing. I worked in law. That led to consulting for startups. Then I was chief of staff. Now I'm in product operations. But, you know, I didn't have a traditional background to get where I am. And if you ask me what the next role is, because I'm not on a traditional path, it's just whatever the next opportunity is, really. Like whatever the Mm. next big thing is. But then there's also the combination of between that and the things that I'm trying to build for myself, like having this podcast, having my newsletter, having, you know, the website that I run, all of that stuff where there's big opportunities there and I love that side of things and I would love there's a part of me that would love just to do that but also there's a part of me that still loves like what I do yeah how do you find straggling straddling like tech and media at the same time so having this whole media like the newsletter the podcast all of this kind of stuff and then having a full-time tech job how do you find straddling the two it's difficult you laughing. <laughs> no, time-wise, it's, it's difficult sometimes. I think what is helping now, like right now, specifically at this moment in time, where I think I'm getting a lot better at it, is trying to find overlap between a lot of the things that I produce. So, for example, okay, we're recording this now. This can go on YouTube. I can cut it up into clips. I can write about what we've discussed. We can We can do a lot with the same stuff, if you get what I mean. Like I can talk about the things that we've just discussed now and use that in other kinds of content. Whereas before, I think when I was first starting, part of the journey of building something from scratch is figuring out like what your platform is. And I'm sure maybe it was the same for you. Like you have to figure out what is my, what is my voice? What do I actually talk about? And I think part of that is just trying stuff. So I've, you know, spent maybe two years doing this. The current iteration, the current version has only been here for like maybe five or six months. So okay. someone, someone that I just interviewed recently was asking, oh, how long have you been doing this podcasting thing? And it's like, the current version of this podcast is very new. I have been running this exact same podcast. I, I've changed the name maybe twice. I've changed the, the podcast art like three or four times. Like I've been doing this thing for, I think since 2018. So that's like four years, but not consistently. It's been start and stop. But I think that's part of the process, the creative process where you're trying things, you're learning things, you're seeing what works, what doesn't work. You say something and you think, does this feel authentic to me? Is this who I am? Because do is do I want to be the person that talks about this kind of thing? Do I want to be known for this? Because I think that is also what happens sometimes. And, and this maybe comes full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning, where 
I feel like maybe part of my personality is multifaceted. I can talk about finance stuff. I can talk about technology stuff. I can talk about society stuff. And I can talk about productivity and all of those other things. And I think one thing that I found is that part of the reason I started, even with the podcast, is because I, I was tired of people coming and asking me the same questions. And the same with the first version of my blog as well. I was like, let me write it down one time. And anytime someone <laughs> asks me for the link, I'm going to send <laughs> you, you the link to this this same thing where I've already answered the question. And the first, if you look, I haven't even deleted them. The first couple episodes of this podcast, some of them I'm talking about like politics stuff and some other things. And then there's a few which are about investing. And literally every time someone asks me about investing, that I recorded those specifically so I can send you this thing and oh, say, you see, this is smart. it. It's done. Yeah. But then I had to be like, is that actually me? Is that like it? Is that what I want to be? Because I feel like around that time, then people start coming to you only for that. And I okay. went through a period where I was like, yeah, I can talk about that. And I know about that, but I don't know if I want to be that guy and so you have to kind of i don't know if it's rebranding or branding full stop and I, I hate the phrase branding but it is you know deciding who you want to be because being online being online is a really weird thing where in person live you have nuance and people can yeah. appreciate the nuance of who you are as a multifaceted being because everyone that you meet you don't assume that you know everything about who they are based on the context you met them. If I met you at a party, I'm not going to assume you're the party guy. I would know that today you were at a party <laughs> and tomorrow you could be doing something else. Tomorrow you could go to your job. Tomorrow you could be doing all kinds of stuff. But online is really weird because we make snap impressions of people based on whatever it is that we saw them talking about the first time, that's that person now. Or if you talk about yeah, one yeah, thing yeah. a few times, that's this person now. And so maybe that... It gets like that, innit? You're like, you're yeah. the guy who likes to clap cheeks. You are the girl that twerks. You are the person that eats biscuits for dinner. That's just not how it goes. Yeah, exactly. Like, And also, if you have... And that was another issue. Not issue, but that was another period I went through where I feel like my Twitter before, I wasn't using it for anything. I was just making jokes. Like, just because this stuff is funny. Because there's, there's all kinds of funny stuff on Twitter. And so, yeah, I would just make jokes. And then you become a funny guy and I'm not that's not who I, I, I maybe I am I think I am yeah. in real life but yeah I think you're funny yeah yeah I don't want to have to live up to that that's not all of who I am and what I do you yeah, have yeah, to go yeah. through an intentional process of being like okay just so you know <sighs> here's everything else that's also part of my life I can't be asked, you know, if you might think I'm a 50, <laughs> that's all right. Let's just, <laughs> yeah. you're going to be but the I get it. When you're guy. building something, I'm just going to be the biscuit guy, man. Yeah. I, I, I went out recently. Someone approached me. was like, you're that guy from Twitter, innit? I was like, I guess I'm the Twitter guy. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to, I know we've spoken about me, but it's interesting to hear your journey as well, right? Like that kind of balance between the two and how, like, I think there's a real message in like, never stop trying and figuring out what works for you and what might be for you this week might not be for you in the next three weeks and not being scared to like try that out and change it i think that's so important when it comes into careers like sometimes like the, the best thing about being a vibes person is wherever the vibe takes you you never know the opportunities that are going to be in there you just step yeah. in excitedly to explore it and i think that's really important man and it's probably a beautiful thing that you've done with your podcast the vibe has taken you elsewhere and you've just followed it authenticity man absolutely i think that has to be the title of this episode it's following the vibe that's what it is now but thanks for making the time, man. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you, my guy. No, no problem at all. It's an honour. And also, I, we didn't mention, but this project that you've just started, I just saw the announcement. 
Yo, yo, yes. So I'm gonna. Can I do a little ad? Yes. Okay. 100%, great. So, hello, it's Richie Britton. No, I'm joking. So <laughs> basically, I am the official one extra ambassador for the We Move Social Action Fund. Children in need and um, one extra have made a relationship together so they've come together to create the we move action social action fund and it's a fund that has 10 million pounds over 10 years so they basically give a million a year for projects that are specifically rooted in like the betterment and progression for black youth so it's for black children specifically so um, anyone listening if you've got any ideas i'm so sorry david i'm proper doing an ad here no if anyone's got any ideas (laughs) go to bbc.co.uk forward slash pudsey p-u-d-s-e-y your idea doesn't have to be developed they do a sixth month development program so if you've just got an idea that you know will help your community you can apply get the funding and it will help you develop the idea and if you're an established organization you can apply for up to fifty thousand pounds it's wild man i love that that's amazing genuinely like 10 million is a lot 10 million equity you know equity but these are the things that we need in our community and i I know we've already talked about this but you know even shout out people like stormzy that are putting people on with books I, i just think it's huge the impact that people can have and and you only realize it when some people start doing it because other people weren't doing it. And it's not to say, you know, other people, what other people should have been doing with their money. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying that it's crazy to see the amount of impact that can be had when very few people actually intentionally go out and try and make that impact. Like, I don't think it has to be a huge thing. And I think sometimes that's what we're waiting for. We think that it has to be a massive movement. It has to be Black Lives Matter, like scale. It has to be all of this going on. But sometimes just a few people can make such a big difference. And so just like Richie was saying, just like you were saying, anyone that's listening, if you have any ideas, feel free to, to send them in. Drop the email one more time. So if you have got questions, we move fund at bbc.co.uk. And if you'd like to apply or you want more information, bbc.co.uk forward slash pudsey. That's P-U-D-S-E-Y. And this is unapologetically black. It's for black children and black led initiatives. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please do stay tuned for more. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps the podcast. And follow me on Twitter. Feel free to shoot me any thoughts. See you next time.